0: Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate, brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox.
1: Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing your nation's public radio source for what you need to know to invest wisely and profitably in real estate in the united states in 2013 thus blowing this as an evergreen for shows when i am not here well i'm sitting in the studio while my cell phone's not lit up no guest must be question and answer week oh yeah that's right it's the last week of the month thus it is question and answer week which means that it, there's no show unless you have questions for me so what we're gonna do is this you are going to send in questions you have on any topic related to real estate investing If you want to do it the way that's almost guaranteed to get your question answered before the end of the program, you'll call in at 513-772-9658 here in the greater Cincinnati area, or if you're listening to us from someplace else in the world, you can call us toll free at 877-772-9658, or alternatively, you can send questions in via mail, email, that is to say. Just go to the website askvina.com. Askvina.com. You will find there a button that says "Ask Vina a Question," and once you receive that, or once you uh, get in there and fill in your question and where you're writing from, because that is important, uh, hit the send button. It'll come here via email. You'll also notice some other interesting things while you're at AskVena.com, like the opportunity to receive our weekly real life real estate investing e-letter, which includes information about the upcoming show, an article about real estate investing, and sometimes information about other things that are going on in the real estate investing world, conferences, classes, web classes, things like that. So if you click that button, go ahead and fill in your information there and uh, we'll send you the weekly e-letter again that is askvena.com either for questions today on real life real estate or uh, to sign up for our email list a question here that uh, actually came in earlier in the week we we do get questions throughout the week there at the askvena.com website Uh, questions from question is from Chris it says I've been listening to real life real estate investing for one year now and I've listened to all the previous episodes on iTunes that is quite a feat there are like a (laughs) hundred previous episodes there on iTunes Uh, he says I listen to many other gurus but you are my favorite by far I reject the term guru Chris gurus are people that people follow blindly I don't want anyone to follow my advice blindly. I want folks who think about real estate and understand that there is work that you have to do to be successful. And that yes, you will get rewarded, sometimes all out of proportion to the work that you do, but there is work. I'm going to take it as a compliment nonetheless. He says, I need to put together a marketing plan. See, you understand. You understand there's work. I've mailed letters to foreclosures with equity and have purchased inheritance lists. What do you think about absentee owners and bandit signs? Can you give me ideas for any other lists to target? I'm looking for flips, rentals, basically anything. I need properties. <laughs> um, very good, Chris. Uh, so let me let me let me answer a question that you didn't ask, but should have, um, and I. Don't be offended, I say that to people all the time. You, know, you need to be asking this question. Um, it says you have mailed to foreclosures and that you have purchased inheritance lists. My question to you would be, have you mailed the inheritance lists yet? Because I generally find that it is easier for folks when they are implementing a marketing plan to do it one chunk at a time even even if it even if it's quickly you know quickly sequential even if you go you get the inheritance thing implemented and then the next week you start mailing out the next thing uh it's easier to do it one chunk at a time rather than all at once for the simple reason that if you have read anything about marketing and i i, I think you probably have or you wouldn't even know what to you know here uh you know that you're going to send more than one piece of mail to most of these lists and to get it organized in such a way that you know, all right, so I sent out, I sent out uh, this list of letters to people who inherited properties on the 1st of April. And I need to send a next letter to that same exact list in six weeks, but also I'm going to have another list in two weeks to which I will be sending my first letter to, and then I will have to send it out in six weeks. So when you've got the, the set of reminders or ticklers set up, that says, oh, it's time to send out another letter to that first list we did, Uh, and you kind of have tested the response a little bit, you're going to have more success with each individual mailing. When you, when you, one week you send out uh, with, with no testing, uh, a thousand letters and postcards, and they are to mixture of foreclosures estates uh out of town owners um bandit people want, people are calling you from your bandit signs it's it gets very difficult to tell very quickly which of those mailings are working and to what degree so that you can make tweaks to them to make them better so the first thing that I would do is go ahead and develop your mailing for the new list that I think you have but have not mailed to as of this point. And then and, and and set up your system for like when is the next piece going out and you know, are are you getting these names, are they being sent to you? And did you buy the list or are you developing it off the web, something like that? Uh get that as automated as possible and preferably get someone else doing it. And then move on. Now, whether or not you did anything with absentee owners would depend on where you live and you did not tell me that that's why i always ask people to mention where they live in uh in their com response form um generally an absentee owner list can be a good list if you if you uh narrow it down so that you are writing to absentee owners of the kinds of properties that are likely to be problematic for absentee owners. Uh, We once did a mailing to absentee owners where we just included everybody who owned any property and did not live within a a, a tri-state area here and discovered that we were mailing to a lot of people that uh, the reason their address was in Florida is because they lived half the year in a $400,000 house in Cincinnati and the other half of the year in a $700,000 house in Florida. They were snowbirds. And they weren't particularly interested in selling their house here. And even if they were, it wasn't really the kind of house that um, one sells at a discount or that even if one does sell at a discount, uh, there's a lot of investor buyers for because the the raw dollar numbers are just too big. Uh, Bandit signs, again, depends on, on where you live. They can be very, very effective. But as you probably know they are pretty much illegal every place. There's, there's no, no place in the world that doesn't have a sign ordinance that says that hanging those things up is some kind of a finable misdemeanor. Uh, some places are more likely to penalize you for that than others are. So uh, that's uh, that's a big part of whether the, quote, hassle of bandit signs is, quote, worth it or not. So um, next time, if you could let me know where you're from, that would be That would be somewhat helpful. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. And do thank you for your question, by the way, Chris. Uh, It's question and answer week. So if you have any questions at all, let's hear them. 877-772-9658 is the number to call or go to askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate, a service provided to the public by WMKV and the producers of Real Life Real Estate. On the fourth, no, not fourth, last Wednesday of every month, sometimes it's the fifth Wednesday, of every single solitary month, your chance to, I don't know, try and stump me with a question, Um, um just get a question answered, whether it be about deal finding or tenants or rehab financing the real estate market whatever it is you would like to talk about we will be happy to uh answer it here on the last wednesday of the month on question and answer week the way you do that is by calling in with your question at 513-772-9658 if you are in the greater Cincinnati area. If you're listening to us online on wmkvfm.org 877-772-9658 is the toll-free number. Or you can simply go to the askvina.com website and enter your question there and get on our email list. And I believe... Unless somebody in my office has been a lot more organized than I've been, there's also still the opportunity to grab Mr. Drew's negotiation white paper that I think he put up there like a month ago when I was supposed to take down, and I don't think I did it. So want to learn something about negotiation that's there too uh questions coming in from all over the place in effect i've, I've just received like five retweets where people were tweeting out that the show was on so yay a uh, question from franco in southern california sunny beautiful southern california where it's probably not 45 degrees and there's probably not snow on the ground he says, Hi, Vina. are there any strategies that an investor can use with a homeowner that either has no equity or is underwater, but is not in foreclosure? Or should we not pursue these homeowners at all? Uh, now, Chuck, I'm going or Chuck. Sorry, I, I looked up at the screen and Chuck is the next person, Franco. Uh, the yes, uh, there, there are strategies that you can use with these folks. However, I'm going to assume that you are still only talking about people who are in this position and are motivated to sell. In other words, I have my San Diego house, my my San Diego starter home, my my thousand square foot ranch house that is worth $390,000. And I owe $391,000. And I Really want to move, I want to move to beautiful Cincinnati, where I can buy the same house for approximately one tenth the price, so I need to get rid of this house, but my problem is i can 't because I owe too much to sell it with a realtor and pay the commission and pay the closing costs and all that kind of stuff. I assume that 's the person that you 're talking about franco you 're not going to try and pursue non motivated homeowners now, assuming that you find this person and this person is motivated they are not in foreclosure. And I'm also going to assume that they don't want to go into foreclosure so that you can do a short sale. Your best option is probably something like a lease option assignment. It is, uh, are the terms of their loan good terms? Are they, is it a low fixed rate loan? Are they willing to let someone make the payments on that loan? And that person will not be you, it will be the person that you find and qualify to move into their house to make the payments. And uh, what you will receive for that is an option fee that uh, on a house like I just described could be $10,000 or up, by the way. There's some more detail on how that strategy works and on what sort of property. If you go to our iTunes podcast and look for Ron Legrand, he spoke recently on the program about these lease option assignment deals and um, spends about an hour talking about the ideal property and how you set that up and so on. That has become quite a hot strategy In the past few years, as there have been more and more people in the position that you describe, they need to sell, but they honestly owe too much to sell. And frankly, yes, they could do this themselves. They could go find a person themselves to move into the property, but they don't know how. They don't know how to qualify them. They maybe don't want to qualify them. They don't know how to set up the paperwork. So the thing that you provide there is. Uh, you lease option to property, you assign your lease option to somebody else, and that somebody else is someone that you actually bothered to carefully qualify. So go check out our podcast and uh, get some more information on that because that is, I think, what you are looking for. Thank you very much for your question, Franco. Let's go ahead and go to the phones and talk to Chuck, who's in Union, Kentucky. Chuck, welcome to Real Life Real Estate.
0: Oh, great. I, I stumbled across your radio show and the timing couldn't be better. Um uh, I'm in a fortunate situation and, and where my wife and I are looking to buy a second home on the lake. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the things in looking at it, you know, we looked at a couple different price houses in different ranges and we found one we really liked. Um, I could afford it, but what I found is a lot of people rent those houses. Um, and I guess my question is, is, um, when since it has a limited uh, rental season, basically boating season, about twelve, twelve to twenty weeks, mm-hmm. um, I was looking trying to look up in the tax credit if I'm an actively actively managing um, the rental. Um, it said something in there about a limited amount, how much personal time you could use. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if you'd be able to answer that for me if if if, if the rental period is only like a twelve week time. Um, the rest of the year is that free and open to use for personal use or
1: well uh chuck i, I think there's there's a, a you probably ran a couple, across a couple of different things while you were googling this that have now got you confused about what what uh, different outcomes of this are this is a home that you intend to use part of the year
0: um, it, yeah, just to, just to, it's a, it's a, it be a second home. It's not going to be my primary residence.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, it's just a place to go get away hit the lake and spend some time with family and friends.
1: Uh huh. Aren't you going to want to use it during boating season?
0: Well, yes, I will. Um, but the thing is, I've still got nasty habits like coaching football, so uh, <laughs> that takes up some of my time and, and time with just work. I can't. I won't be able to get away every weekend.
1: I'm pretty sure there are twelve step groups for that. football coach anonymous or something
0: it's a it's a a deep deep addiction
1: (laughs) so so your concern you you mentioned you mentioned uh, the concern having to do with taxes and I think the question here is whether this this property is going to be qualified as an investment property versus a second home right
0: Uh, yes
1: okay your bigger concern there is, are you intending to pay cash for this or to finance it? Uh, finance it. Okay.
0: I'll have to put 20% down. I've already spoke with the bank about it, and they said the 20% down, which is, uh, I've got that money and finance the difference.
1: Okay. You can get it for lower money down if it's your personal residence, even if it's a second home. More okay. more importantly, even if you choose to put 20% down, I'm not objecting to you put 20, putting 20% down. I think that's a good idea if you can afford it. Uh, you're going to get a better rate of interest if it is your personal home.
0: Okay.
1: So... Question number one does not have to do with the taxes. It has to do with the bank. <laughs> right? So, mm-hmm. so Mr. Banker, yes, this is my second home. I, yeah, I may rent it for a few weeks over the summer, but that's neither here nor there because it is going to be my second home. Now what mm-hmm. kind of rate can you get me? Okay. Because cause we could be talking about a full like 1% drop in the rate.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: okay. Which, which Which may mean that now you can pay it off over 15 years instead of 30. Right. Which would be right. awesome, right? That's the plan, 15, 20 at very most. Okay, so uh, to me that's really the number one question because uh, although I am not a tax expert or I don't don't go to to your CPA with this, don't go to the bank with it, um, you can treat, I believe, that you can treat the same property partly as a personal residence and partly as a rental based on how many weeks a year you rented it. Now the only the only tax advantage to being able to treat it as a rental at all is the the depreciation allowance. And mm-hmm. the the thing that people don't get about depreciation is that it has to be recaptured when you sell the property. It's only okay. it's only a tax break for right now. <laughs> when you sell the property later on, you do get you do have to to pay back the depreciation you took, okay? So it's not to me Unless you have a forever timeline mm-hmm. in owning the property, that appreciation is not that big a deal. Okay. you can already sir, can, well, you can, alre- can. you can already deduct the interest on the loan, whether it's your right. own home or not. You can already deduct the real estate taxes. The only other thing that you would be able to deduct that uh, would be a result of renting. it would be any you know cleanup, turnover, that sort of thing, which you can probably do either way. Okay. So I'm I'm not sure that it's really the tax issue that's the big one here. I think it's more the, where do I get, the, how do I get the better financing?
0: Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, my banker had mentioned that, uh, you know, by, at least by putting more down um, in, it, in a personal home, it would be almost a whole percent mm-hmm. difference in
1: the, the finance rate. And the points will probably be less, and the process that you will have to go through to get the loan will be simpler. Uh, if you can, if you can work this out so that you can do like a 15 year loan on a personal residence with 20% down, you will be in the low threes, if not the high twos mm-hmm. on this loan.
0: Yeah, it's, it's,
1: uh, 2.44. Oh goodness. <laughs> yes.
0: It, it, it and I. the way I look at it is it's, it's, it's almost crazy not to, it's almost free money.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and, and also to boot, you know like I said, if I could rent it for just four or six weeks out of the year, covering probably half of my annual payments mortgage payment, why wouldn't I do it hmm okay
1: yeah and and uh, the main the main concern here, of course, being that it be a house that you like and that you want to use because we need to get somebody on the show again about vacation rentals. We haven't done that in a while. Uh those always turn out to be a little bit more expensive and a little bit less uh profitable <laughs> than than you thought. And I assume you you live close enough that you would be managing this yourself. Yes. Okay. That will help. That that will help that you don't have to have a manager who's charging for the rent up, for the turnover, for all of that. Sort of thing, but you know, whenever someone says to me, "Well, I want to buy, buy a vacation home, and it will be awesome because I will also be able to rent it when I'm not there," I always say, "Make sure you love it first. <laughs> don't mm-hmm. don't don't look at it first as how much money can I make or how much can I offset." Mm-hmm. Okay, because uh, that's it. Never quite turns out to be the way folks think in that regard. But you know, again, for you, it's just a bonus, right? You wanted the right. house anyway, right? right now is this a is this a um a Cincinnati near lake
0: uh about three three and a half hours away okay
1: okay, so it's quite it's quite distant all right uh, i was gonna i was going to make a suggestion for an outlet for potential renters that may or may not work depending on how close it is to um another destination and that is that uh have you have you seen these websites where people can uh basically either trade houses like I'm going to live in your apartment in Paris and you're going to live at my lake house for a week and yeah
0: like VRBO type
1: thing those sorts of things and there's also ones now where it's not a trade you you post your property and you say yeah it's my house but you know you can come and live here for a week if you're going to be visiting and usually they're they're pretty close to like you know cities so mm-hmm. the people who often rent them are honestly folks who are here for week long conferences and they don't want to stay at a hotel. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how uh, close you are to
0: It's it's a it's a fairly remote location so that that wouldn't that okay. wouldn't happen. I mean, the reason people go there is for the the uh to not outdoor be recreation. City.
1: Okay, well if you need anybody go down there and stay there for a week and um you know do a home inspection uh that kind of thing, you know, you know where I am on Wednesday nights. All right. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot for your call, Chuck. Appreciate it. Sure, thank you. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vena Jones Cox. It is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. If you have a question, you can give us a call at 877 772 9658. If you're listening on the web, 772 9658 in the greater Cincinnati area, or send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I am your host, Vena Jones-Cox. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. And we're taking any questions that you have about investing in real estate, whatever phase, at 877-772-9658, where you can send in your question by going to the AskVena.com website. A listener uh, just sent me a an article from Kiplinger.com called Tax Rules for Second Homes. The, uh, the thing that Chuck was referencing, and this is very interesting, Mike, when you buy your second home, you want to keep this in mind, if you rent the place out for 14 or fewer days a year, you can pocket the cash tax-free, even if it's $10,000 a week. It's your money. Gee, the tax code doesn't isn't manipulative at all, is it? So, so, so if I'm wealthy enough to own a second home, I can make as much money off as I want off of it for two weeks a year, and the IRS doesn't even want to know about it. Now, after fourteen days, you have to report your rental income, and um, as I was telling Chuck, you allocate the expenses based on if you uh, if you own it for fifty-two weeks this year, but you rent it for twenty. You're gonna allocate the expenses over the 20-50 seconds that you used it as a rental property. So um thanks very much, anonymous listener, who sent me that. And apparently another article, articles too. There's two articles about it. Uh let's see. Going back to the AskVina.com uh website. <laughs> Do you use bandit signs? This is from Robert in Hudson, Ohio. Do you use bandit signs to help you reach out to motivated sellers? I'm concerned about receiving fines for violating local ordinances that prohibit their use. Should I research the laws in the areas where I want to use them before posting them? Have you ever been fined or threatened to be fined for using them? I'm looking forward to hearing your advice on this matter. Well, Robert, way back when, like, I don't know, we're coming up here, I think, on the. 17th anniversary, 17th anniversary of Real Life Real Estate Investing. And very early on in the show, I had a guest who was discussing the use of bandit signs. And I got my first angry, crazy phone call on live radio. The first the first time somebody called and just like lost it on the radio. And it was a, a person who lived in a neighborhood where there were a lot of bandit signs. And this person was very, very angry that anyone would hang I buy houses signs up in their neighborhood because they were eyesores and they were, you know, why were people trying to steal the houses in that neighborhood and just, just all sorts of things. And, um, it, uh, it, um, shocked me so badly and left me with such deep and ongoing bandit sign anxiety that I'm almost afraid to answer bandit sign questions on the radio. Now, even nearly two decades later, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, and i'm going to do it i'm going to do it from the 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 point of view of of playing both sides Robert one side of the argument is if you are going to be fined for hanging these bandit signs and and as I mentioned to a previous caller that that uh it's different uh how much is, how much it's how much these laws are enforced. And how big the fines are and how aggressive the uh, code ordinance people are about uh, tracking down who owns the bandit signs and so on. There are folks out there who would argue if I have to pay a $50 fine for every bandit sign that I hang, but as a result of hanging 50 of them, i make two deals and walk away with $30,000 then i am willing to risk having to pay those fines i mean i've actually i've actually spoken to people who have come right out and said that i get fined all the time and i don't care because it makes me more money than the fines cost me then there's folks on the exact opposite side of the spectrum who say you should never hang a bandit sign because it's against the law and also because it, it is an eyesore and it does bother people and thus you just shouldn't do it at all. And then there's folks in the middle and the folks in the middle will say things like don't, don't don't put your bandit signs in places where they're likely to disturb people living in their neighborhoods. I mean, put putting a bandit sign at a, at a busy street corner where uh, it's all businesses, number one, is likely to have a higher response rate because more people will drive past it. But also, it's not in front of somebody's house, right? Uh, they will say things like, hang them on Friday when code enforcement is going to be off all weekend and pull them back down on Sunday. Uh, they will say things like hang them on Friday, and most of them will be gone by Sunday anyway. So, uh, this is a this is a decision that you have to make based on understanding that you're almost not going to find a place unless it's an unincorporated area where there is not some kind of ordinance against them. You are going to have to understand that they do bother some people a lot. Although I also once asked a caller, does it does it bug you when? When political signs go up in your neighborhood? Does it buggy when those dental insurance $5 a month signs go up? What, 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 is, what is it particularly about real estate bandit signs that bother you? And they said, well, people shouldn't be trying to buy people's houses in my neighborhood, which I thought was a little strange. So knowing those things, and knowing that yes, they absolutely do produce phone calls, and they do produce deals, you're going to have to make that decision for yourself. Um, I'd I'd love to give you some more guidance and say, oh yeah, they're absolutely gonna every every sign you hang is gonna get you five phone calls. I can't tell you that because uh, it depends on where you where you hang the sign, how long it's up, what it says, is it the right colors, uh, is it handwritten or is it uh, pre printed, what size is the sign, is it is it so small that no one can see it, or is it so big that it's gonna blow down the first time there's a a heavy wind. And I'll tell you my experience from talking to people all over the country is that the same bandit sign will work very differently in different parts of the country. And what that seems to have to do with is how, how available public records are where you are. In other words, is everybody who's in foreclosure already getting a a million letters from every real estate investor in the area, because it's super easy just to go online and find out who's in foreclosure or is it an area where you have to basically go down to the courthouse and and pull giant slabs of granite out of a dusty storage room because that's how they keep their public records? Uh, in that case, bandit signs, in those kinds of areas, bandit signs tend to work really, really well. So, yes, research the laws, talk to people, um, No, I have never been fined for using a bandit sign because I use them very, very rarely and only in very particular uh, conditions. But that is not because I don't believe they work. It's just a personal choice based on all of that stuff we just talked about. Thank you for your call and for listening. Uh Next question is from Fred. Who doesn't tell me where, he, oh, nope, he does tell me where he's from. He lives in California. And just been introduced to real estate wholesaling. I'm drawing up a little business plan for myself. And my question relates to repair cost estimation. How does one develop the skills to estimate repair costs accurately? I understand the more properties you see, this skill set will be more finely tuned. But what can you do for the first few houses, perhaps walking around a Home Depot a few hundred times? (laughs) Until you've memorized every SKU number. That's right, Fred. That's how you do it. Uh, This is a this is an extremely common question, Fred. And the sheer act of seeing properties isn't going to make you a better repair estimator. What it will make you is better at seeing the problems and it will make you better at understanding that there's only a certain number of things that can go wrong with a property. Um, my, uh, Jerry Fink, who's been a guest here on real life, real estate many times says that the number is in the forties. There's only about 40 things that can really go wrong with a property. And you just, you just see the same things over and over and over again. And they, they stop surprising you. But what that makes you is a better inspector, if you will. It doesn't necessarily tell you what it costs to fix that problem, which is, is part B of the whole repair estimation thing, right? What's wrong with it? And then what's it going to cost to, to fix it? Um, what you need to do, Fred, is you need to make yourself a list of the common repairs. Um, Replace roof, replace gutters, replace windows, uh, replace kitchen cabinets, replace tub, replace toilet, replace vanity, paint, carpet, vinyl, sheet flooring, uh, ceramic tile. And you need to start talking to local renovators about what they are paying for those things. And when I say local renovators, I don't mean the guys who go into the million-dollar house and do a custom kitchen for $50,000. I'm talking about your buyers. I'm talking about people who are going to renovate that house for resale. Find out what they are paying for those things. And you'll get a range. Uh, You know, one person will say uh, 92% uh, forced air furnace is... Um, eighteen hundred dollars, and the next person will say no, it's two thousand, and the next person will say no, it's fifteen hundred. The next person will say it's no, it's twenty five hundred. That and that's true. That's what they're paying. They're not they're not lying to you. Uh, guy number one buys an upgraded furnace. Guy number two has a a, a really cheap installer and uses them a lot. So uh, you're going to come out somewhere in the middle there. If you're getting if you're getting prices from fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred on a particular item, you're going to say all right, it costs about two thousand dollars, give or take to do this item. You will find that most of these folks uh, don't estimate loosely. They don't say it costs $250 to do a minor patch and paint on a room. They say it costs 25 cents a square foot to paint a room, or it costs a dollar a square foot to hang and tape drywall, or it costs um, uh, $150 a linear foot to put in Kitchen cabinets that are 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 mid grade that you would put into a starter home, and because they are the they are the other folks who are going to buy from you anyway, it is their prices that you need. Now you don't want to you don't want to call like one rehabber and say I have a list of forty things and I'd like to ask you about them one by one. Uh, y- you go to you know ten different people and say Hey, what about these ten things? And you compare their prices until you. Uh, feel like you've got sort of a, a middling number that will allow you to go in and make an intelligent repair estimate. I have never found a way of just going online or getting a book or even getting a home study course that could accurately estimate what investors pay for different things in different parts of the country. As I have have gone around the country and talked to real renovators in various areas, I find that for the most part, most of the repairs are within a, a limited range that you can get your hands around, but there's always one or two things in any particular area that are just not done or the prices are much higher or much lower. Than they are in my area. Uh, the example being, I was in New Jersey one time, and uh, I was told that a roof that here would cost maybe $4,500 to tear off and replace was going to be $10,000. And I, I said, "What? Uh, th- 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 there's no way. I can't believe you're spending $10,000 to do a roof. I'll, I'll come and do the roof for you. I'll fly up here and do it for you for $10,000. And I asked three other renovators and they said, yeah, they're all in that range. And it turned out that there's this, in this particular area, there's this massive permit, uh, thing there. You have to pull permits and it's a very complicated and expensive thing to do all of that. And there's inspections at every step of the way. And that's why it's so expensive to do a roof there because that's, that's not, that's not normal that there's a lot of inspections and, and a big permit process to put on a roof. So, um, knowing that sort of thing about your area is very important. And the way you're going to find that out is by talking to people. And yes, go see a lot of houses, because that will teach you that it costs about the same amount of money to replace a 10 year old kitchen that just is funky and ugly as it does to replace a 40 year old kitchen that's outdated. And and you stop you stop doing that thing where you walk in and you see a, a house that's basically cosmetically ugly and you overstate the repairs because you're being affected by the fact that it's cosmetically ugly and uh, allows you to get a real um, sort of mini scope of work that allows you to then make a good offer. So. Uh, Good luck with that, Fred. Uh, Join an association, by the way. I don't know where in Southern California you are, but join a real estate association there because that is where you are going to get to all of these renovators and uh, get this information. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. I believe we need to take a quick break. We've got time for just a couple more questions at 877-772-9658 or by going to askmina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. I'm going to what we've been getting a wide variety of questions about all sorts of things today, which is always fun. Um if you have a question, you got a couple more minutes to call it in or get it in at 877-772-9658 or by going to askvina.com. Uh either way you can I suppose wait until next month's question and answer week, but um yeah, we got a couple of minutes here left. A uh, question here from Peter in Lawrenceville, Georgia. He says, As a wholesaler, when I collect an earnest money check from my buyer, is the check made out to me or to my title company? I'm thinking it's made out to the attorney, but what if the buyer does not go through the deal? How do I get a non-refundable check that's not made out to me? Uh, Peter, the answer is, as a wholesaler, you don't ever get an earnest money check. Earnest money checks are for sellers. Earnest money checks are refundable. Earnest money checks are, I am holding this property with this money. I'm proving to you that I'm in earnest. But uh, if if uh, if I if the, any one of the contingencies in this contract is... Uh, not fulfilled, then I won't be buying it. That's, that's not what you're receiving. What you're receiving is an assignment fee. I'd like to see it made out to you, Peter. Uh, w- you got to think about what it is you're receiving this for. You have a right. The right is to buy a property, right? And you are assigning that right. That's what you are getting paid for. You should get paid to assign that right, and it should go to you. Okay. Now, you will occasionally run across a buyer who says, "Now wait, White Peter, why should I give you the money? The deal hasn't closed yet. I mean, how do I know? It's I'm not worried about me not showing up. I'm worried about the seller not showing up. In which case, it is fine to have that escrowed with an attorney or a real estate agent. It doesn't matter who that is because it will be accompanied." by an escrow agreement signed by both you and your buyer that says that is your money and the only circumstances under which it is not your money is if the seller cannot or will not abide by his part of the contract so in other words if it turns out there's some humongous title problem that can't be solved obviously the buyer can't close you assigned a right that although it existed could not be exercised um if the seller just decides they don't want to sell and doesn't show up, won't sign anything. Uh, it was your job to bring that seller to the closing. So let me say, let me say that a different way. It was your job to get a title to the buyer. So yes, you don't get to uh, keep the money in that case, but the escrow agreement will say Peter and Bob buyer agree that this is Peter's money, except in these circumstances, and that it will be given to Peter on the date of the scheduled closing. Or the actual closing, whichever one comes sooner. And by the way, the guy who's holding the escrow—be that the attorney, the title company, whoever—is uh, hereby held harmless by both Peter and the buyer for doing what it says to do in this contract. And uh, furthermore, uh, he cannot not do what it says in the contract, even if Peter or the buyer come to him separately and say, "Don't do it," unless they both agree in writing. So, uh, long answer. Uh, made short, the money should really be made out to you. And if not, then to somebody who is a neutral third party holding in an escrow with an escrow agreement. Question from Esther, (laughs) that I should have started at the beginning of the show, because I've got three minutes left. And this is about a 90 minute long question right here. Uh, What is what are the best marketing tools to probates and absentee owners. How do I fill my pipelines with deals? What strategies do I have to implement? What is the best lead source for a wholesale deal? Well, Esther, there's there's lots of good lead sources for wholesale deals. You just have to remember what you're looking for. Houses that need work, that have motivated sellers, that are one, two, and three family properties in bread and butter areas and border zones. And because we do only have three minutes left. um, Let's address uh, probates, because that's a real good one. Um, You know, they tend to have lots of equity, many, not all, but many of the owners do want to sell the property. And many times many, but not all. uh, They do need major updating in order to be in really good shape for the area. Filling your pipeline with deals is a combination of constantly doing these mailings, even when you don't feel like it, even when you're busy doing other things. And here is the most important thing. And the thing that I think most real estate investors are not good at, and that is responding to the calls and following up on the leads, not letting your voicemail fill up with 50 people who want to talk to you about selling their houses and you not calling them back either because you've gotten overwhelmed or You're afraid to talk to them or you are so busy trying to work your way through the ones you've already talked to that you can't talk to the new ones. Um, Being on top of that is very, very important. Your goal should be answer the phone. And if you can't answer it every single time, return all calls before you go to bed that night. And that'll keep you from getting that overwhelmed feeling. So uh, good luck to you, Esther. Thank you for your question. It is the end of another question and answer week, but do not fear because we will definitely be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.